0: Revelation chapter 19, this morning with God's help, we will be considering verses 7 and 8. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention, for this is God's very word. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray together, saints. Gracious father, son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask now that you would give us grace to hear your word, to believe your word and to understand your word. Help us, Lord, to live in light of your word, to act in obedience. And the acts of the saints are called the righteous acts. Help us, Lord, your bride, to ready ourselves, for we have been made ready. And Lord, help us to glorify you in our lives. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, saints. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to welcome you on this Lord's Day, Sabbath, as we continue our study through the apocalypse of John. Last Lord's Day, we considered the glory of God ad intra and the glory of God ad extra. In verse 6, the unified voice of the great multitude in heaven say together, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. From this... We embarked upon, I believe, what is and will be a lifelong and a new in the new creation an endless eternity long beholding of the glory of God. I pray that you were encouraged by considering the glory of God at intra and at extra and that um, your your view and beholding of the glory of God will continue to be, as Brother Scott said to me last week, rounded out um, clearer and clearer, our vision of the glory of God by the grace of God will continue to become clearer and clearer until on that blessed day when we receive the that thing which we are increasingly longing for, the blessed vision of God. Uh, we see now, in a sense, through a glass dimly, and as we grow in knowledge and grow in faith, and as we grow in faith, we grow in hope, and as we grow in hope, we grow in love, and, and these things will reach... Um, An apex that never ends, if I could say it that way, when we see God, when we have this blessed beatific vision, and that blessedness will increasingly never end, we will behold Him. Pastor Isaiah said last week, and and he has been saying this, we will get to see the one of whom we read of. We will get to see the one of whom we preach of. And I'm paraphrasing now, the one who lived for us, you will see him. The one who died for you, you will see him. The one who rose from the dead, you will see him. The one who ascended into heaven, you will see him. And you will see him return in the same way that he ascended, in in the clouds of glory. We will see him. I pray. I pray that you long for that day. I pray that you actually think about that day, that it is something that does consume you, seeing Christ again. There are many things in this life that can consume us, aren't there? There are many things in this life that can cause our minds to be consumed and distracted. But I pray that the one thing that God gives you grace to be consumed of is seeing Him again. Um, No, seeing Him for the first time. I pray that your minds are consumed with seeing Christ In the meantime, God has given us sacraments that are visuals that sustain and increase our hope in the life, death and resurrection, ascension and return of Christ. We are given visuals, aren't we? We are given the waters of baptism. We are given the bread and the wine. And in these, our sense, our senses of sight, of taste and smell and touch and even hearing, they're moved. And they are moved. The intention of their movement is to move our minds, to move our hearts, and to move our wills upward in and, and to Christ. They are they are meant to show us these visuals. The goodness of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. But dear ones, as wonderful as baptism and the waters of baptism are, as much of a blessing and wonderful the, the supper of the Lord is, There will come a day when those, when those visual representations will meet their, their fulfillment. Meaning this, there will be a day when baptisms will be no more. That, that there will be a day when all who are in Christ will be gathered. That, that, that full number of disciples will be united as one. That number will be complete. There will be no more adding to our number through baptism. There will be a day when the supper will be no more. That the the final, that, that what the supper represents, the final defeat of sin, the promise of the return of Christ, there will be a day when that will be completely fulfilled. But Pastor Isaiah will pray at times at the supper, let this be the last time we take this supper in this manner. Christ who is mystically present in the supper will be present with us in an an eternally new and never-ending way. A way without end. One day. One day we will not be dismissed from His presence. One day we will not have a a benediction saying, Go, uh, live in light of, of, of what you have just heard. You will be in His presence eternally. And that won't change. In the meantime, We are in preparation. In the meantime, we are, as a bride, readying herself for that blessed day of union with her groom. We are going through sanctification. And sanctification could be properly called purification, or being made holy, or or being made perfect. We are going through that process as it is now. We are waiting as a bride for her groom to come and take her away. Here in verses seven through 10, but we will only be considering verse seven and eight, John does compare the church to a bride. She has been made ready, listen to this, and she readies herself for the arrival of her groom. She's been made ready and she readies herself so that when he arrives, the Bride will rejoice like she has never rejoiced and be glad like she has never been glad before because the two shall become one in a way that in an, that in a way that an earthly consummation could never even come close to this morning with God's help, we will consider just two points concerning the readiness of the pure bride, the readiness of the pure bride number one, two points number one. Two women, two cities, two kingdoms. Two women, two cities, two kingdoms. The 17th chapter in the 17th chapter, we were introduced to a woman that John describes as being nothing nothing less than a harlot, nothing less than a harlot. To those who dwell on the earth, the unrighteous, she is attractive to those who dwell on the earth. She has all the things that fallen man desires. In Revelation 17, 4, we read, The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. She is adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Those who have the mark of the beast commit acts of immorality with her, and she is drunk on the blood of the saints. We've considered this for the last two chapters. Praise be to God. He does not allow her wickedness to persist forever. Her her sin, her evil, is brought to an end. She will reap double, according to the scriptures, according to her deeds. The cup in which she has mixed the blood of the saints, she shall drink twice as much of God's judgment for her sin. And here in the 19th chapter, John sees yet another woman. She is meant to be contrasted by the harlot. We've seen this woman, not the harlot, but this woman that's a bride before. We saw her in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. She is the woman that was with child. She is the woman that was crying out in labor pain because she was about to give birth. She is the one who fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for her by God. John sees... That there is a time now for this woman, the bride, to be carried out of the wilderness by her groom and be carried into the very presence of God and her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will come a day when the bride will come out of the desert, dear ones. There will come a day when the bride will, will come out of Babylon fully and finally. Notice, though, she is ready. We'll talk about this in a second point. But rather than being adorned with purple and scarlet and gold and pearls and stones, this pure bride, the church, displays her readiness by her simply and beautifully being adorned with just this fine linen that is bright and clean. She is, of course, again, the church of Jesus Christ. She is, again, meant to be contrasted with the world. Those who have taken the mark of the beast... And those who are in the world and also of the world, those who belong to Satan. The angel reveals to John that there is a vast difference between the two, these two women. The bride is pure. She has been betrothed to her groom and she will not allow her eyes to be lured to another. The harlot, on the other hand, she's committed to the beast, but she gives herself to anyone and everyone. She is unfaithful. The bride walks righteously. Righteously. As she commits acts of righteousness, she is enhancing like salt and shining like light in the darkness. The harlot, on the other hand, is is so much of a sinner that her sin, the scriptures say, piles up to the heavens. It is um, sin upon sin that stacks as high as the heaven, revelation eighteen five. Rather than shining in the darkness, she increases darkness. She teaches others to sin. And she will one day, therefore, have a millstone tied around her neck and be thrown into judgment. John sees that there, that this theme, this theme that has been running from Genesis to Revelation, will one day come to a consummate end. It is the theme of two cities. It is the theme of two kingdoms, which here are two women. It is the theme of the kingdom or city of Satan and the city or kingdom of God. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, Satan began recruiting citizens, even through Adam and Eve, Satan began to recruit citizens for his kingdom, for his city. Adam and Eve, they turned from the path of wickedness though, didn't they? And turned to the path of righteousness, as they believed in the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Because of their belief in the promise of God, they were disqualified, if you will, from Satan's city. And qualified now for the city of God. God was gracious to Adam and Eve, giving them their first and then second sons, Cain and Abel, two new potential citizens for one of these two cities. The deeds of Cain and Abel would reveal what city or what kingdom they belonged to. You would you know the story well, Genesis chapter four, verse three. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering of the first fruits of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord warned Cain, sin is crouching at your door. The Lord warned Cain, sin desires you. You must resist it. But Cain could not resist the harlot. She was tempting him by luring him away from his creator. And Cain could not resist her allurements. She lured Cain into filling her cup with the blood of righteous Abel. Thus, in his act of murder, he became a full-fledged citizen of the city of Satan. Augustine, in his book, City of God, argues that the name Cain means possession, acquired, or control. You, You remember that when Eve learns that she is pregnant and gives birth to her son Cain, she says, I have acquired a son, or I have possessed a man. His name means acquired or possession. Cain later has a son, a son of his own, and he names his son Enoch, which means dedication. Augustine argues that these two, Cain and Enoch, they are are intertwined as father and son. Two citizens and two builders of an earthly city or an earthly kingdom that opposes God. This city would be called eventually Babel. It is the first Babylon. Established by the sinful slogan, dedicated to possession. Dedicated, these two names, to possession. The city of man literally lusts for domination of all things for its own glory. Cain and Enoch are the founders of the first cities in Genesis. Their cities and their the name of their city and the founders of their city, they are a, a representation and reminder of the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Lusting or dedicating themselves to possessing that which is earthly, dedicated to possessing glory for man. Because of this, those cities will ultimately and finally fall. There is no goodness in those cities. There is no no goodness in the city of Satan. There is no goodness in the city of man. And and whatever goodness and whatever charity is found there is not sustained. The city of man is devoid of truth of not. It's not devoid of justice, but it is devoid of true justice. City of man, the city of Satan, shallow, it's corrupt. The city of man is founded on self-love, self-love that cuts people off from one another. It's a city whose relationships are built on 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 domination, the ethic of domination. The telos of the city of man. Listen to this, and I hope that you make the right connections. The city of man is it distorts. True love. It distorts true love and encourages people to separate from God. And in doing so, they separate themselves from the one who is, in fact, true love. That Those who are in the city of man, they distort what true love is. You can make those appropriate connections. And encourage you to separate yourself from God or redefine what God says is true love. When God himself is the one who defines true love, for God himself is true love. The Lord graciously gave Adam and Eve yet another son, though. His name was Seth. One that would take the place of Abel, not in the sense that one son can replace another, but in the sense that God, through Seth, from Seth, would continue to build his city. That God, through Seth, would continue to build his church, and that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against her, his bride. When Eve learns that she has another son, Seth, she says, God has appointed me another son. The name of Seth means appointed. But that is what we are, aren't we? Appointed means chosen. It means elected. He stands for what all those who are of the city of God, citizens of the city of God. He stands for what all of us are. We are chosen. We are appointed. We are elected from the foundation of the world. And Christ We have been predestined. If you trust in Christ, then you are appointed. If you trust in Christ, then you are those of whom Peter describes as being a chosen or appointed nation, an elected nation. You then are fellow citizens of the city of God with Seth. Seth is your brother. Spiritually speaking, every man, woman, listen to this, boy and girl could be categorized as belonging to one of these two cities. Either one is a citizen of God, of the city of God, or one is a citizen of the city of man. But you can't be of both. You are either a citizen of the city of God, or you are a citizen of the city of man. But you can't be both. You can't be born again and not be born again at the same time. You can't be in Christ and not in Christ at the same time. You may live in one here, but be a citizen of another there. Spiritually speaking, we are called again and again to not be of this world. You know these verses, don't you? Romans twelve two: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. John says in 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world. Or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world. That is belongs to the world. The love of the Father is not in them. Uh, does that mean you should not work? No. Work. Does that mean that you should not be involved in in, in activities of the world? No. Be a part of them. But don't love them more than God. Don't let them take the place that God has in your hearts. They are not to be your God. The Lord says in Revelation 18, 4, come out of her. If God were to come today, would you be sad? Because you might miss something here. You mean this will come to an end? It, It will be no more or I'm not ready to let it go. If you were to die today, little ones, older ones, middle-aged ones, whatever age you are, would you would you be sad that you are missing out on something here? Or would you be delighted that you will finally and forever be able to behold the face of the one who lived for you, who died for you, who rose for you, who ascended for you, and who was promised that he will return for you? And not only that, but then bless you and allow you to share in his goodness Would you be sad if your day was today that you were missing something here? My friend, if you are sad of something that you were missing here, then I I challenge you to question, who, what city do you belong to? What citizen, what city city are you a citizen of? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, Jesus says. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You are not of this world. You are citizens of another world if you are in Christ. Symbolically speaking, don't take this too far, what woman are you? Are you the harlot or are you the pure bride, the church of Jesus Christ? Uh, What city are you a citizen of? What kingdom are you a citizen of? You can't be of both uh, saints and those who have ears to hear. You can't be of both. It's one or the other. At their core, these two cities, these two kingdoms, They are characterized by, they are, they are characterized by two different loves and two different masters. So you can't be both. They are diametrically opposed to one another. The city of man was created by man's self-love and it's driven by self-love. Glory for themselves while members of the citizen, while members of the city of God are created by God's love, characterized by God's love and express love For God and for one another. Saints, of which kingdom do you belong to? You may say, but I'm not perfect. We're going to get to that in our second point. But you are progressively becoming perfect, aren't you? You are not what you used to be, even though you are not right now what you are to be. Is God getting sweeter and sweeter to you as the days go by? Yes, he is. And I pray that you also are getting sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. The lover is making us lovely. If we are in the lover. Augustine in the city of God says two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly by the love of God. Even to the contempt of self. The former in a word glorifies itself. The latter glorifies the Lord. The one seeks glory from men. But the other great glory of the other is God. The witness of our conscience. The one lifts up its own head in its own glory. And the other says, Lord, you are my glory. And you are the lifter of my head. Psalm 3.3 What city do you belong to? What kingdom do you belong to? Because here in Revelation, John is saying, one city will fall and the other city will stand forever. Remember in Revelation that uh, the cities of the world, the kingdoms of the world had become the kingdom, the one kingdom of our God. They've all fallen and there is only one that remains. the kingdom of God. What city do you belong to? One is going to fall. And if you are in that city, the city of men, you will fall with it. But if you are in the city of God, you will stand with Him forever and reign with Him forever. May I appeal to you before I get to my next point. Turn to Christ and become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Turn to Christ, young ones, older ones, middle-aged ones, all who have ears to hear. Turn to Christ, And belong to the kingdom of God. Do not face that ultimate, do not face that ultimate end when Babylon falls and when the harlot is destroyed, when Satan is cast into the eternal abyss. Number two. How do you know, how do you know what city you belong to? Let's get into that. How do you know what city you belong to? Number two. Here's the point. The bride is made ready and readies herself. The bride is made ready and readies herself. This is verses 7 through 8. The innumerable uh, number, with, uh, the, the saints without number that we know, they lift their voices as with one voice in, I love this, in joy and gladness. Please don't let those things go by you. In joy and gladness, and they give glory to God. They esteem God as being most valuable. Because the time has come, the scriptures say, for the bride and groom to unite in the most complete sense. Verse 7. The marriage of the Lamb has come. There was great joy exceeding that, that, that probably cannot be even, even expressed in my language or any other language. The type of joy that we will experience and gladness and glory is given to God because the marriage has come. The, the day of marriage has come. I don't know. It, and you don't necessarily have to be married to understand this. But maybe you do. There's something very unique about the day in which you know that you are going to be married. There's something about the night before, the preparation, the, the things that one thinks about in their mind, the, the type of, um, of manner that one has on the day of their marriage. I, I will, I'll say this very quickly. I remember when my brother Isaiah was, was getting married and he had um, done a lot of work to fit into his suit. He looked very good, by the way, uh, to get into his suit and we all hung out together that day, the day before his marriage. There was a type of anticipation going on. There, there was a, a type of um, of, uh, of expectancy happening as we were preparing to, to go to that place where they were going to be married. And I remember texting my brother or maybe calling him or something like that and saying, do you, do you, Would you want to spend some time together before you get married? And me and him went downtown to, uh, to Los Angeles and... and I, he hadn't eaten in like probably a week or two, it seems like, and we devoured an entire pizza together and then devoured maybe another half a pizza together and then we went to to do something that we used to do when we were younger we went and, and and at night and found a basketball court and just played horse together all of these things were were kind of preparation for him to release the anticipation and the and the stress of i'm getting married tomorrow and I knew that he needed it I knew that there was a Let's spend some time together to relieve some of the things that are on your mind. Let's just eat. Let's go shoot some hoops. But there was an anticipation and preparation for that, that special day that they had together, he and his wife. Saints, you are right now in preparation for that glorious day. There should be an anticipation in your soul. Because your Redeemer, your groom is on his way. And we know not the day or the hour. We are called to be prepared. And you and he will be together. Fully and finally as one and that will never change. There is coming a time when sin will no longer reside in us the saints. When Satan, the false prophet and the harlot will be cast into hell. When the church will receive the vision of God and become pillars in the house of God. That is coming at any moment. John sees that the bride has, I'm going to say this a few times, made herself ready. Interesting statement, isn't it? She's made herself ready. In what way has she made herself ready? The saints in heaven rejoice over this reality. The lamb has come. And when he does, he finds that she is ready. Even more than that, she's made herself ready. The bride has been waiting for his arrival. In our culture, the groom stands at the altar and he waits for his bride to come. In the eastern cultures, the bride is at home. And she is waiting for her groom to come and pick her up and take her away. And while she is there, she does not sleep. She does not slumber. Uh, she puts oil in her lamp, for she knows not when her, her groom will come. She is dressed uh, so that she will not be caught off guard, unprepared, and not dressed. She has prepared herself for the arrival of her groom. For the church, of bride of Christ, this marriage will not take place until the dragon and his city are removed so as to not have anyone stand on the day of that marriage and object when this man takes us, his bride, to be with him forever. The the dissenter is removed. The one who causes division is removed from that place. He can't be there. But, the dragon and his city are also useful for the preparation of the bride. God is using the dragon and Babylon to make us ready. We are being made ready. And one of the means by which God makes us ready is through the dragon and through his, his city. How so? Babylon oppresses us. Babylon uses a harlot to tempt us. And ultimately, God uses these things to refine our faith and to teach us what it means to endure suffering like a faithful servant. He teaches us what it means to suffer with Christ. First Peter 1.6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why is this happening, Peter, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may result to may, fa- may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning what? Meaning the opposition that you face is not for nothing. The persecution that you face is not for nothing. The temptation that you are facing on a daily basis, it's not for nothing. It is God's, in a, in a way, refining fire. It is God allowing you to experience the sufferings of Christ in your body. It is God allowing you. Pastor Isaiah is going to talk about this later on in the afternoon. It's God allowing you to kind of fill up the sufferings of Christ in your own body. Through suffering, you are experiencing the, suffer- you are experiencing the sufferings of Christ. You are not going to walk through this Christian life Without opposition. And God will use the opposition to make you know Christ better and to be like Christ. God will use persecution just as Christ was persecuted, so that you will you will know how to have um, someone oppose you and you still glorify God in that in the midst of that. God will use even the temptations to cause you to see that there is someone, something greater than what the harlot is offering you, namely Jesus Christ. God will use these things to cause you to say, No, I'm turning my eyes from these things because I've been given new eyes. And my eyes no longer find joy or satisfaction in those things. Nor do my ears, nor do the members of my body. I find joy, I find completeness in Christ now and no longer in these things. Why? Because I am a citizen of the kingdom of God, not a citizen of this world. God will use Babylon to, rem- to show you that you're not a citizen of Babylon. Babylon. Aren't you glad when you're confronted with certain sins and you say no to them? Aren't you glad when you're confronted with certain temptations and you say no to them? How are you able to say no to these things? It's because you are you are a citizen of a, of a different kingdom. You are not of this world. It's why the world opposes you, because you don't belong to her. The harlot, because you won't give in to her allurements, wants your blood. She can have our bodies. But as we've taught already in Revelation, she can't have your soul. You belong to God. You belong to God. All of that we experience is being used to conform us to Christ. Paul says that that these afflictions, they're light, they're momentary, but they are working out in us an eternal weight of glory. They are eternally working something out in us that will continue even when we're gone from this present world. Revelation 19.8, the bride is given fine linen, bright and clean. Here's, here's what fine linen is. It's the righteous acts of the saints. G.K. Beale says, it's the righteous acts of the saints. The bride has made herself ready. In what way has she made herself ready? By performing righteous acts. Well, the, the question should then come, what are righteous acts? What are righteous deeds? we figure out what this is by the immediate context and how the phrase is used in the apocalypse. In verse 10, in response to the glorious things that are being shown to John by this angel, John does a peculiar thing. He falls down and he begins to worship the angel. It's so overwhelming to John, what John's being shown, that he just falls down and starts worshiping the angel. the angel goes, says in verse 10, Don't do that! I wish there was an exclamation point. Because don't do that! I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, listen to what he says, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. I am a servant with you. And those who do this, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. G.K. Beale explains that the readiness of the bride is found in her righteous acts. Well, what are the righteous acts? They are... Holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ. What are the righteous acts? They are holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why why does that matter? In context, it's holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ in the midst of opposition and persecution from Babylon. Righteous acts are making the decision to hold on to Christ. To hold on to the testimony of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Come what may. Righteous acts are you not turning your eyes to the harlot and you not becoming a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. God is using Babylon to test our faith so that it may be pure as gold when Christ returns or so that you may be dressed in fine linen. That your acts may show that you have belonged actually to the kingdom of God and not of Satan. God is using Babylon and the harlot to teach us to turn from sin to patiently endure suffering with Christ, to hold fast to the testimony of Christ in spite of opposition. Holding fast is relentlessly reaching out to touch the hem of His garment even when the world is attempting to push you away from Him. Holding fast is refusing to leave your place at His feet even when you are being compelled by the world to be distracted by other things, but you won't be. Holding fast to Christ is saying, you need only to say the word and it shall be done because you have authority in all of heaven and in all of earth and I believe what you say. Holding fast to Christ is clinging to the foot of the cross even when you know it could cost you your life. In all these things, we hold fast to the testimony. The testimony is the gospel. We hold fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of these things. Testimony occurs seven other times in Revelation, uh, usually in the expression testimony of Jesus, and it always has the contextual idea of this, bearing witness to Christ in both word and deed. The clothes of fine linen of the bride are this. They are when we hold fast to Christ in what we say and what we do. It is evidence. Of our salvation. It is the righteous acts of the saints. Holding fast to the testimony of Christ. By what we say and by what we do. For the saints to hold fast. Also means that they negatively. Reject the loyalty. That Babylon calls them to. Instead they obey the command to come out of her. And give their loyalty to God alone. Holding fast is. Love and charity, but in this context, especially, it's endurance with a reward. The marriage can't take place until the saints complete their preparation. Performing, listen to this now, we're going to get into this. Righteous deeds or righteous acts by persevering in faith despite the world's persecution. Now, there's a tension here, and there should be. I've intentionally said the word, his bride has made herself ready. You've made yourself ready. You're getting ready. And you're getting ready. And you're getting ready. You're making yourself ready. I hope that as um, those who are reformed, you would say, hold on, hold on a second. What do you mean by that? And you should. We know that we are not able to perform these righteous acts on our own, don't we? We know that apart from the help of God, we can do nothing. But the scriptures are saying, the bride has made herself ready. How is she able to make herself ready? Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The bride has made herself ready because she has been given the ability to make herself ready. The bride has made herself ready because she has been given clothes to get ready. Uh, The clothes have been laid out for her. They are now hers. And she's been given the will, the ability, the heart, the mind, and desire to put them on. Paul repeatedly says, put on Christ. Philippians 2.12 Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You know this verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How is this accomplished, Paul? Paul? For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here's the tension. And there is some, right? Because God is at work in you moving your and my will to righteous deeds, we are to work out living by evidencing that we have been saved through fruit. You show that God is at work in you when you perform righteous deeds. When you don't perform righteous deeds, it is evidence that God is not at work in you. Because we are called to, you know, uh, work out means to live out. (laughs) Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling means live out. That you have been saved. And do so with fear and trembling. And when you do so, it is God who works in you to do these things. Through obeying God's commands, it is the evidence that God is at work in you. He's moving your will to love him. You are living in the knowledge of faith and growing in the knowledge of faith. And by doing so, you are making yourself ready because God has given you a new heart that is now able to clothe yourself in a manner and to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, one might jump to a conclusion, one that I'm not making, that we are being justified by our works. We are not. We deny that man is justified by his own works And we affirm justification that is based upon the righteousness of Christ alone. We affirm this. What does the life of one who is justified look like? Are you with me? It's a transformed life. When the bridegroom calls, the proper response is, change your clothes and get ready. But they're not clothes that you've made for yourself. Nor are they clothes that you've given to yourself. They've been made by God. They've been prepared by God. They've been given in to you so that you might live in them. And in doing so, the acts of your life prove that you are walking in the newness of life. They've been given to you so that you now wear them, but you wear them with God's help. I hope that you see this. You live because God lives in you. You obey because God is at work in you, causing you to obey. But you obey. And proper attire must be worn in order for you to have entrance into the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 22, our Lord tells tells of a parable feast, of of a wedding feast. Interesting. The king has invited guests from the highways because the first guest refused his invitation. The king comes into the wedding feast and he begins to examine his guests and then he notices that there's a man there who's not wearing proper wedding attire. The king asked the man, verse 20, uh, verse 12 of chapter 22, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? How did you get in here wearing what you're wearing? Those are not the proper, that's not proper wedding attire. And the man, Speechless. He didn't have an answer. He knows that he's dressed improperly. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him, hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness, in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Righteous acts are a transformed life of good works. Not a life, not a life of perfection. Though do not think for one moment that perfection is not the goal. I've been saying in the past, and I caught myself in this, in this sermon preparation, um, not perfect, but progressively, right? But, but progressively becoming more like Christ. L- let, me, let me rearrange that thought. <clears throat> you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection, in fact, is the goal. If anyone says you don't have to be perfect and you failed to, to understand the command to be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. Perfection is the goal. Is it attainable in this life? The answer is no. But should we strive for it in this life? The answer is yes. Isn't that what you pray for when you ask God to make you like his son? And is his son not perfect? So then... If you're asking God, if we're asking God to make us like His Son, what are we really asking for if perfection is not the goal? I want to be like Christ. Let me say it this way. I want to speak to my wife perfectly every single time. I want my response, my attitude, uh, all that I am toward my wife, I want it to be perfect every single time. Will it, will it be? No, not, not now. But I am striving for that. I want that. For me to say, I'm not to my wife, hey, I'm not going to be perfect towards you. That is a slap in the face to the command of God. Be perfect. You men are to be are are to be, in a sense, a type of Christ to your wife. You are to love her and to lead her and to guide her along and to do so as a gentle shepherd. It is your call to do this. Well, I'm not going to be. Stop settling for just getting by. Be the man that God has called you to be. Women, same thing. We want to be perfect. It is what God is calling us to, and God help us to be that. I don't want a passing I don't want to see minus. And do you not know that you will be rewarded for the righteous for your righteous acts in heaven? You will be rewarded for such. We are saved by faith in Christ. It is Christ who saves us. And the proper internal response to the glorious gospel of Christ is faith. The the proper internal response is, I believe, love, hope, understanding. They are all movements of of the will internally that you can't see. But evidence that those things have been moved is found externally. It's a transformed life. I want to speak to my kids in the perfect way every single time. I don't want to be um, negative toward them. I don't want to be fatigued when I'm around them. I don't want them to see me not at my best all the time. I want to be my best all the time. I want to be my best when I'm talking to you. I don't ever want to offend you. I don't ever want to have you think of me something that is not good. I don't want that. And I also will not walk away and say, I don't care what you think. Because that's not seeking holiness. I do care what you think. I want you to see me as a godly man. Which means I need to live as a godly man. The same goes for you too. You want me to believe the best about you. Well, we need to walk righteously before God then, don't we? We don't walk according to the standards of this world. We walk according to the standards of God. What does God say for our life? I want that thing. I want to live in that then. I don't want to settle for just getting by. I want to be as God is. I want God to make me like His Son. Don't you? Righteous acts of the saints, they are a badge that is required upon entrance into the wedding supper of the Lamb. James hit it on the head when he said, Show me your faith by what you say, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Simply, true faith is evidenced by fruit. John the Baptist challenged the religious leaders who were coming to be baptized to produce fruit in keeping with as evidence of true repentance. Do you truly repent? Then show it by the way that you live. Show it by your ra- righteous deeds, your righteous acts. Yes, they are enduring. Yes, they are um, holding fast to the testimony of Christ, holding on to the gospel of Christ. Yes, they are. This would mean, theologically, that justification, listen to these two distinctions, is the causal, necessary condition for entrance into the, into the eternal kingdom. Faith in Christ is the is the cause of how you get in. It's the cause. And good works are, listen to this, the non cause. The non-causal condition, necessary condition for entrance. One is the cause, faith in Christ. The other is the non cause, but it is still required. Because if you have faith in Christ, it will follow that you have righteous deeds. I mean are you understanding that? Having faith in Christ is in, in, in his in the person. And finished work of Christ is what gets you into heaven. It's the cause of your entrance. Good works are the evidence that follow that faith. They are not the cause of the entrance, but they are necessary for entrance because they're evidence that you have been changed. Romans 2.5 but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of Jesus of righteous judgment who will God of God who will render to each person according to his deeds to those listen to this by persevering in in doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality eternal life but to those who selfishly ambitious whose selfish ambitions uh, do not obey the truth but obey but obey unrighteousness wrath and indignation here's what he's saying to the one who doesn't obey Wrath to the one who does obey eternal life. I'm going to say it again. <clears throat> Lest anyone get the, the wrong idea, I'm not saying you earn your way to heaven. I pray none of you walk out of here saying, he just preached salvation by works, not in the least. The cause is Christ. That is how you're saved. That is how you have interest, entrance into heaven. And the work of Christ is found in a life that walks upright before God. Progressively being perfect. Progressively being perfected. For that is what is taking place now. Receiving white clothes conveys the idea of purity. Because you have passed the test. When the clothes that are white have been given to you in the very end. And you are dressed. It means you have passed the test. You've endured. You've persevered. You were long-suffering. They are the rewards of these deeds. You have now clean and white linen. Verse 8. Fine linen is the reward or result of the righteous deeds of the saints. Because you walk upright before God, you will be given clean clothes. White robes. Saints, I encourage you. Belong to the city of God. Show that your faith is in Christ by your righteous acts and deeds. I said earlier, uh, they are um, persevering. They are uh, holding fast, but they are also love and charity to one another. We will one day, when we are there with God in glory... We will be vindicated. We will be acquitted of all of the earth's judgments against us when God reverses those judgments and says to us, not guilty. We will be welcomed into the kingdom of God because we are in Christ. We will be declared righteous, which occurs six times here. We will be acquitted of all guilty charges. We will be vindicated. Therefore, the saints in heaven they do this; they rejoice and they are glad. Jesus says in Matthew five twelve, "Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven." In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are in you are in good company, and because you endure, one day. You will be able to rejoice and be glad like you have never had joy and never been glad before. And that joy and gladness will never end. This is the reward for our enduring hardship. This is the reward for our enduring persecution and false accusations for the sake of Christ. And saints, God doesn't just save us from the condemnation of hell. He removes us and is Continuing to remove us from the pollution of sin. From the stench of sin. We have upon us now an aroma of life. We no longer walk around with an aroma of death. What fragrance do you give off, dear ones? When you are with your family. When you're with your friends. When you're at work. Are you an aroma of life? Or are you an aroma of death? When you are in the presence of others, can they tell what kingdom and what city you are a citizen of? By your words and deeds. I pray that if your confession is, yes, I have faith in Christ, And you would be an aroma of life to others who are around you and not of death. Rejoice, be glad, give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. When you're tempted to despair, remember salvation is yours in Christ. and, And your wedding day is approaching. When you are opposed by the world, remember salvation is in Christ. And your wedding day is approaching. When you are persecuted. And when you are not accepted. Remember that your salvation is in Christ. Hold fast. Endure. Press on. Because your groom comes at a time. That you know not. And be ready. Because on that day. The sadness that you feel at times. The despair that you feel at times. That sometimes, at times, overwhelms us. It will be turned to an eternal gladness and joy that will never end. Let us not wait to be glad. Let us not wait to be joyful. And let us especially not wait to give Him glory. For this is already accomplished in Christ. Let us pray.